Uh, hello and welcome to the podcast. Uh, this is a, a special edition of the podcast. Um, my name is Ian Loans, one of the consultants in the uh, paediatric emergency department uh, in Derby. Um, and I'm pleased to be joined uh, by a good friend of the podcast, um, uh, Dr. Alistair Munro, who's a paediatric registrar and clinical research fellow in paediatric infectious diseases. Uh, good evening, Alistair. How are you? Yes, I'm very well, thanks, Ian. How are you? Uh, yeah, good, thank you. Um, and we're talking today about, well, you know, the only thing that anybody's talking about at the moment, uh, which is, of course, coronavirus. Um, and this podcast, just as a sort of caveat going out, we're recording this uh, tonight, which is Wednesday, um, the 11th of March 2020. So details from this podcast will be correct as of today. Um, and we're specifically talking about children and uh, coronavirus. Um, so just to start off then, Alistair, um, thinking back to sort of s- s- respiratory swabs I've done in the past in years back in, in sort of babies with bronchiolitis, I'm sure I've seen things like coronavirus pop up then and nobody's ever really paid any attention. Um, so why is there now a big fuss about coronavirus? Um, so coronaviruses are really a family of viruses and there's the, a few very common ones. So we, we think probably about 30% of uh, cases of the common cold are due to, um, you know, a, a range of coronaviruses. But obviously, we're um, particularly interested in them at the moment, because there's a new one. And when I say new, I mean, it's it's never been seen uh, before uh, in, in human beings. There's uh, a series of different coronaviruses, which are known to cause uh, severe respiratory infections in human beings, of which most people are familiar uh, with uh, SARS and MERS. Um, and now, unfortunately, we've got uh, a new coronavirus to add to the category of uh, nasty ones. Um, and the name of this virus is uh, SARS-CoV-2, um, which is an acronym and it, it stands for um, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome uh, Coronavirus Two, uh, and the two is because obviously there's another uh, SARS coronavirus which causes SARS. So it's a, it's a little bit confusing, but probably the uh, easiest way to refer to it is the disease that SARS-CoV-2 causes, and that's been called uh, COVID-19. And again, that's another very handy acronym, and it stands for Coronavirus Disease 2019, which is the the year that it was first discovered. Okay, so COVID-19 is the disease, SARS-CoV-2 is actually the name of the virus. Yeah, that's right. And it's the, the names are done based on sort of the uh, genetic analysis and what we call the taxonomy. So the, the family of, of viruses it's most uh, closely related to. Okay, so the thing that, you know, having you know, encountered coronavirus before, the, the difference now is this is something new. This is something novel that we've not really seen globally before yeah that so it's just a completely new virus no one's entirely sure where it's come from we're we're quite sure that it's it's what's called a a, a zoonotic disease so it's originated from animals Um, and again uh, virologists who have looked at that the genetic makeup thing it it looks most similar to um, a type of coronavirus that's often found in bats Um, although it's also very similar to a coronavirus that's found in pangolins uh, which one of yep. my favourite animals, and I was very distraught to hear that people may end up pointing the finger at them as being a, an intermediate host that's that's brought it to human beings. But uh, due to 
the way that viruses mutate and evolve, it's managed to find its way into into humans. Okay. So thinking then about, okay, the differences, these, these are nasty coronaviruses, the differences between COVID-19, SARS and MERS, um, and I know that that you and Alison Boast have, have written about this for, for Don't Forget the Bubbles, um, but you talk about the, the R0 and the case fatality rate. Can you sort of talk us through what, what those are and how they differ between these different diseases? Yeah, uh, so the, I think the first thing to say that's really important is that these numbers are not hard and fast and that the best way to think of them is as a rough guide. So uh, just a, a general indicator of um, how infectious they are or how easy they are to spread. And we measure that with a figure that's called the R0. And um, that particular figure means on average, um, if no uh, precautions are taken, how many um infections will one case cause so how many other people will one person infected with it give it to and uh, that's the r naught and then the other thing that we're obviously really interested in is how serious it is and uh, one of the easiest ways to measure that is how many people will die from the disease and so that's what we call the case fatality rate and that's um, as a proportion or a percentage so of all of the people who catch the infection what percentage of them will die from the illness um so obviously those two things are really case specific because different countries for example have very different um uh, social and cultural elements that will uh, affect how many people it is spread to um of course it's not a fixed number so one person might transmit it to no one else and one person might transmit it to 10 people and of those two people the average is five but of course no one spread it to, to five people and then again, looking at the case fatality rate, that's highly, highly context specific. So we've seen really massive differences um, between countries so far and how many people have, have died from the illness. Um, and that's because there's such a huge number of things that can influence that. So the big one is obviously the denominator. So how many people do we know actually were infected? Um, yeah. Because that completely changes the, the, the proportion or the percentage of deaths. Things like healthcare resources, so um, in very high income settings with lots of intensive care beds, hopefully you would have uh, fewer deaths. And then obviously one of the really big things we've seen about COVID-19 is the mortality is highly age specific. So more elderly populations within countries are more likely to, to succumb to the illness. So it's just a, as a little caveat to say those those two things are just general indicators. But if if we were to compare the, the three really serious uh, coronavirus infections, so SARS, for example, um, had a, a case fatality rate of approximately 10%. Yeah, and the R naught from that was was about three, so quite infectious SARS, and again quite a high uh, case fatality rate. MERS, um, which is the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, was re- is what well, is a very serious infection. So the case fatality rate is about thirty five percent. So really lethal infection, but the R naught is low, so less than one. So, so on average, most people w- will not infect anybody else. If we're looking at COVID nineteen we've got to be very careful about how we interpret these numbers because obviously it's still ongoing. There's still a lot of uh, unknowns, but as the picture's evolved so far, estimates um, for the case fatality rate 
are anywhere between sort of one to three percent, or there's even been some estimates of 0.5 percent up to 3.5, 3.6 percent. And the uh, R naught um, is unclear, but it's thought to be somewhere uh, between two to three. So it's quite infectious, and that's really been the main concern nationwide, is well, globally, is how easy it's spread and how just how huge the numbers have been of um, of total infections. Um, and again, as we mentioned earlier, the other caveat to the case fatality rate is the huge discrepancy between age groups. So as of today, I've been looking very hard and I've not been able to find any reports of fatalities under the age of nine. But the, the mortality rate, if you're over 80 years, is somewhere between 15 and 20 percent. So really, really dangerous for elderly people. But so far, it looks like um, not, not the case for, for the youngest patients. Yeah. So, for, you know, for those comments that I've seen sort of say, well, this is just like seasonal flu and there's still lots of people die from seasonal flu, then they are different. They are distinct. Yes, they are. I mean, don't get me wrong. Seasonal flu is bad. Seasonal flu is really bad. And we probably grossly uh, emotionally and sort of cognitively underestimate how how bad seasonal flu is because it just comes and goes every year. But this is certainly a lot worse. And, and actually, the reason why it's so bad is that the caseload is not as spread out as seasonal flu. So flu tends to go over a period of, of, quite, a, of quite a few months and actually it's it's not as lethal particularly for elderly people it's it's not quite as dangerous although it's a lot more dangerous for for young people but in terms of the burdens it's putting on health systems it's i've seen estimates people are saying it's around 10 times what you'd expect from normal seasonal flu in terms of the burden that it puts on a on a health system from people being unwell and is another sort of factor in this the, the 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 unknown in that you know for, for seasonal flu we this is something that we encounter um this is something that potentially we've developed some resistance to this is something that we immunize against whereas covid19 is different it is novel there is no vaccine uh, as yet yeah and that's certainly been one of the main reasons why there was so much global attention on it initially is the uh, the unknowns and so much about it remains unknown so we're starting to get indications of things like how it might affect unborn babies or pregnant women or, or children and this sort of thing but obviously when when a brand new virus emerges you have absolutely no idea and if we look back to the outbreak of zika virus and the effect that that was having on uh, newborn babies or you know fetuses and microcephaly and things like that there's always going to be a lot of concerns about uh, the, these things that we don't know about. We don't know about um, how immunity works once you've been infected, how protected are you? And we don't know about, we you know, still don't have full information about antigenic drift and so how much it might change. And then, you know, even if you've had it once, can you get it again? Is this the case with seasonal flu? Um, so, yeah, there, there's huge amounts of, of uncertainty um, about this virus. Okay. So thinking then and moving on sort of clinically, um, what are the indications of the symptoms that we're seeing in people uh, who've got COVID-19? So what's really difficult about this focusing on children is that we 
I mean, there's lots of unknowns about adults, but there's now, I mean, the, I've never seen quite so much literature come about come out about one disease in such a short period of time. There's there's even already a systematic review looking at case reports of um, symptom uh, burdens and prevalence in, in adults. But in children, we have a- absolutely tiny amounts of data and information to guide us about how this presents. And actually, that's sort of good news because the reason that we have so little information is that it seems that so few children have been unwell enough that they've made it into hospital been tested and then made it into case reports describing the symptoms that they've had um the sort of largest cohort papers are of between 20 and 30 children at any one time and to be honest that those sorts of numbers, when you're looking at things like symptoms and stuff, are not that helpful because right. ra- random chance, you know, can skew those numbers one way or another. And certainly I've looked at a few papers looking at about 20 children and what they've described in regards to blood test results, lymphocyte counts, um, findings on chest CT and everything. Uh, there's actually quite big discrepancies about whether children are more likely to have lymphopenia or um, a lymphocytosis, whether they get, you know, ground glass changes on CT, whether they get this or that. Get that. Um, so the truth is we really don't know because the numbers are so low in children. And I suppose the main thing to say is it looks like from studies that have been done in contact tracing, so looking at, you know, index cases in adults and going and testing all their family members, children ha- are it looks like getting infected at the same rate as adults, but they're just not displaying symptoms. There's huge numbers of children, well, not huge numbers because all these numbers are small, but there are significant numbers of children being picked up on testing who had almost no symptoms at all, or, you know, may have had a fever or may have, you know, just normal upper respiratory tract infections like we see in children um, all the time. Um, Certainly in Adults, the main symptoms are fever and dry cough or, you know, flu-like illness and, and myalgia. Um, but in children, it looks like the, the most common thing is to have perhaps no symptoms at all. And then following on from that, normal upper respiratory tract symptoms. Um, or there have been some examples of children who have had some GI upset as well. So nausea, uh, vomiting and, and uh, diarrhea. Um, but yeah, the truth is we, we're not that sure because there's just been so few examples to to look at but it looks like it just presents when it when it does present with symptoms with those that are very very similar to um cold or flu-like symptoms yeah and uh, i guess that in some ways that's good news in that that children seem to be relatively unaffected and certainly on the mortality data not affected at all from, from that perspective from what we can see so far yeah absolutely i mean that that's certainly good news for the children it's good news for us as the uh the people who will be looking after um unwell children but then the additional problem that poses and this actually is not a a problem that's particular to children because i think we're seeing there's probably quite a large number of very mild cases of infection in adults but if you're not very well with if you're not very unwell with a virus you don't change your behavior. Um, you don't, you know, feel really rubbish. So you stay in bed or you take time off work or you lie on the sofa or, you know, you go to hospital and get tested and then quarantined. You just go and do all your normal stuff. And the problem is, is if you've got a really infectious virus and you're going and doing all your normal stuff, you're spreading it. And that's probably one of the reasons why we've seen um, such rapid spread across 
the globe is that people a lot of people haven't been that sick and certainly children are probably quite a big part to play in that as a, as a reservoir for the virus so going around perhaps with no symptoms at all and anyone who's ever seen a child will be aware that their uh, hygiene is uh, not paramount a lot of the time they are quite often uh, licking spitting sniffing scratching poking in you know uh, getting their bodily secretions all over the place really so so it's quite possible that uh, children as vectors for the virus have quite a large role to play in in spreading it uh, quite widely um well that's not a big problem for them because they're uh, you know don't really seem to get unwell that's obviously a really really big problem for uh, older or more vulnerable or frail adults with comorbidities for whom we've seen um the the morbidity and mortality from the infection is huge yeah um and as you say it's it's it is that spread to the elderly and for those people in in this country certainly i think we're now up to eight deaths from 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 covid um all of them have been having other described as having other chronic health conditions yeah and you know this is going to be a real. I mean, I don't, I, I don't envy the people working for the public health bodies at the moment trying to uh, make decisions about things to do with school closures and things like that. I mean, it. I think a lot of people have very strong opinions one way or the other, but we know, yes, that children are carrying the disease and potentially spreading it amongst each other. And so you think, well, if they're all at school, they'll be spreading it all between each other, and that's worse. But at the same time, then, if you close schools, where do those children go? They either go home and have to be looked after by their parents who have to take time off work who then may also get it and then be spreading it amongst their colleagues or they're being looked after by their grandparents um, who are obviously you know older and potentially more uh frail and vulnerable um so yeah it's a really it's a really difficult situation to to manage on um a, a sort of national uh policy scale Bringing it back to children, then, Alistair, we, we often sort of think about, okay, well, what are the high risk groups in the kids that that we look after? Um, so, how about neonates? Do we have any suggestion that that neonates are more at risk? So, again, we're working with very limited amounts of data, so it tends to be case series of um, you know nine or ten women, often, and and their babies. But there are reports of infections of children um you know just a few days old so we do have reports of uh children having positive swabs in the neonatal period and certainly there doesn't seem to have been any severe ill effects they don't seem to have been any more severely um affected than uh, other infants who as we've already discussed don't seem to get very severe symptoms from it which is very reassuring um other evidence we've had is that uh, for uh, pregnant women who have been infected, we've not found any uh, good evidence of vertical transmission. So I mean, antenatal transmission. So uh, uh, whilst the child is in utero, certainly we think that there's probably been transmission postnatally. Um, and then there's been studies where they've uh, done swabs of the placenta uh, and uh, amniotic fluid and everything uh, once the baby's been delivered and haven't managed to find any evidence of the virus there. So it's reassuring from from that viewpoint, although I think quite a lot of uh, pregnant ladies with COVID in China 
had their babies delivered via cesarean section early on because there was obviously there was so much uncertainty no one was quite sure what what would happen but um based on the the limited evidence that we've got so far um the RCPCH the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health in the UK with the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynecology have uh come out and published some guidelines really really helpful guidelines that have essentially said that uh if a uh, a pregnant woman uh has covid-19 and is in labor that actually um, her whatever her birth plan was should be met as long as there's you know no other concerns about the the fetus or the mum. Um, so they're quite happy for babies to be delivered vaginally, and also they've said there's no need to separate mum and baby once the baby's been born. So the mum doesn't need to be isolated from the baby, and equally no indication to prevent breastfeeding. There's no evidence so far of the virus being transmitted that way, and actually. If you're not separating them, the mum and the baby are going to be, you know, with skin to skin contact regardless. So probably additional risk from breastfeeding is very, very small. Um, And it's felt that because there's no evidence of any severe disease in newborn babies, that the uh, harms of separating mum from baby or preventing breastfeeding would outweigh theoretical risks of of the baby getting um, COVID-19 themselves. So no no evidence as of yet that um, there's anything in particular to fear with neonates. Okay, and then I guess the other the other high risk group of of children that we look after are those who've got underlying health conditions. So thinking of children with things like congenital cardiac disease, uh, chronic respiratory disease like cystic fibrosis. Um, and children undergoing cancer treatment, do we have any information about how it's potentially affecting them? So the simple answer is no, we don't. But again, that could potentially be taken as a, as a sort of reassuring sign. So we're not seeing um, many, many children with these conditions flooding into hospital, being desperately unwell with respiratory infections. Um, but like I said, we, we just don't have any evidence to guide us. And I know this has been a, quite a big topic on Twitter. There's been a lot of people asking um, about their children, what they should be doing differently if their child has a chronic health condition. Um very helpfully uh, in the UK, uh, again, the Children's Cancer and Leukemia Group have posted guidance for families um, who have children who are uh, having active treatment for cancer at the moment. And the guidelines are, are really good, really easy to read. And essentially, they say, take the normal precautions you would with your child. So if you uh, if there are people... Um, uh, who would normally come and visit you who are unwell, they should stay away. If the child has a febrile illness, that that should be managed in the same way it normally would with normal protocols. And again, the advice for trying to prevent them getting COVID-19 or spreading it is the same as everyone else in terms of basic, uh, basic hygiene measures. Um, so I think so far from the evidence we've had that there's no reason for children to be doing anything differently if they have... Um, uh, chronic health conditions or uh, underlying uh, reasons why they might become more poorly because hopefully uh, these children who are at risk probably are doing things slightly differently anyway they've they've got their own plans for what to do under those types of circumstances and so we've got no evidence so far that they need to to deviate from how they would normally uh, manage you know having unwell uh, friends or, or relatives okay um that's that's I guess that's in in a way is is relatively reassuring. Um, slightly less reassuringly, I guess, is going to be the answer to my next question, which is: Is there any treatment so far? 
Um, no, this <laughs> is the it's, again is the is the short answer. So I mean, all, all, the treatment has to be supportive in the first instance. I mean, this is true really for most viral infections we have anyway. Developing antivirals is hard. It's really, really, really hard. Um, what is happening, fortunately, is there's a large number of clinical trials have been underway in China. Um, I imagine we should hopefully start to see the results of those in the coming few months, but there's a whole host of, of stuff that's being tried. Uh, there's a, a new antiviral uh, called remdesivir, which was actually uh, recently trialed for the first time in the Ebola outbreak. Um, although uh, I'm not sure what, uh, what the results were of how that effective that was. There's a few different trials going on of different um, anti-HIV medicine regimes. Um, chloroquine, the anti-malarial, has been shown to work uh, in vitro in a Petri dish at slowing the, the growth of the virus. So that's being tried. And there's even some studies where they've taken serum from adults who have survived uh, COVID-19 infection and then using that as a treatment. So um, I mean, we can't speak to the possible efficacy of any of these things yet. We have to sort of await, await the results of the, the trials. Um, and then obviously the big hope is going to be for the future, depending on what happens with COVID-19. We don't know if this is a flyby by night, you know, big mass infectious event that then goes away or if it's going to turn into a seasonal virus that, that comes yeah. and goes. But there's certainly hopes for the development of a vaccine. And I know there's a number of groups underway, uh, undertaking a lot of work at the moment. Um, uh, I think the University of Queensland and some centres in the US are, are developing different types of vaccines, an RNA vaccine, um, amongst others, um, who are hoping to um, possibly even progress to human trials in the next couple of months. But that's obviously just early phase trials. I think there's almost no chance whatsoever that we'll have a vaccine that's ready for production this year. Um, part of the reason for that is there's been difficulties producing vaccines for other severe coronavirus infections. So for SARS in particular, there was a very promising vaccine candidate that went to animal testing and in mouse models, it was found to significantly increase uh mortality from from the infection because there was an overwhelming host response and this is something that we have seen previously for some other uh viruses uh one of the reasons we don't have an rsv vaccine at the moment is because there was a a, a problem with um an overactive host response following vaccination a previous candidate vaccine for rsv that um led to much more severe disease and, and even death so people need to do all of the thorough testing that you would normally expect for a vaccine, even though there's a big push, there's a rush. We, you know, we want it out there. We want to be protecting people. There's unfortunately, there's just no corners to cut. It's, it would be far too dangerous to skip phases and to, you know, release and market a vaccine that could potentially make things worse. So I think that's still quite, quite some way off. Yeah. Okay. So without any treatment, it's about prevention, I guess, at the moment. Um, and what are the things that, that we can do to minimise the risk? So fortunately, there are definitely things we can do to minimise the risk. And a lot of these things are really quite simple. So the virus is droplet spread and it's, re and it's from, you know, respiratory secretions mainly. So you just need to think about the fact that you want to stop anything that's come from your nose or mouth 
going anywhere near anyone else's nose or mouth. And equally, you want to prevent anything that may have come from someone else's nose or mouth going anywhere near your own. Now, the way that it's going to get there is normally via your hands. So the first thing and the most important thing, and if no one remembers anything else I've said throughout this entire podcast, please just take away that frequent and thorough hand washing will save lives. We know that this goes back a very, very long way to our good old friend Semmelweis, who demonstrated it well. Good hand hygiene saves lives. Um, Soap and water is fine. Soap and water is brilliant, actually. Um, Hand sanitizer, alcohol gel is fine. It will work. It's not necessary. Soap and water will do the job. And, you know, it's good to, there's loads of infographics and stuff around that you can look at about how to make sure you've covered all the easy to miss areas of your hand and uh, some good examples of some songs you can sing whilst you're washing to make sure you've done it for a good period uh, period of time. And then the other thing, and I hate giving this advice because every time I hear someone say it, all I can think of is doing it, but don't touch your face. Mm. I mean, you don't realize actually how much you're touching your face until someone asks you not to touch it. And then, um, well, maybe you're just touching it because people keep telling you not to touch it, but try not to touch your face. Or if you are touching your face, scratching your nose, blowing your nose or, uh, uh, you know, just scratching your eyelid or whatever, washing your hands after you've done it. And similarly, if you, you know, are having to blow your nose, things like blowing your nose into a tissue. When you've blown your nose into a tissue, don't stick it up your sleeve or on a table, put it in the bin. If you need to cough, it's good to cover your mouth. The best place to do that is with the the crook of your elbow. So cough into your elbow. If you cough into your hands, you may not wash your hands. You may go and shake someone else's hand. So coughing into your elbow. Um, There's been a lot of stuff about face masks. I hope most people will know by now but wearing a surgical mask uh, does nothing to protect you from other people just out in you know everyday life so if you're wearing a surgical face mask out to the supermarket that is not helping you if you're poorly and if you've got a cough and a runny nose and stuff it may do something to protect other people from what you're spreading out there but but it isn't useful for protecting yourself so that there's no need to wear surgical masks that that won't help you um, so it's mainly hand hygiene, um, good hygiene around managing your own respiratory secretions and making sure you don't leave tissues lying around, coughing into the crook of your arm. And then the final thing is, you know, we're getting to the stage where really, uh, if you don't need to be getting into close personal contact with uh, people on a day-to-day basis, like, you know, uh, hugging and uh, shaking hands and all that sort of stuff, best to minimize that. And also, if you're feeling unwell, don't go and meet lots of other people. Don't say, you know, don't sort of blow through and say, it will be fine. I can go out to the bar, even though I've got a temperature and a runny nose and a cough and everything. It's best to self-isolate to keep yourself away from from other people. Um, And I think that's a really important thing in this country as well. One of the messages that I think might have been lost is even if you're worried that you have the infection or if your child has it, if you're not... um, seriously worried about a sort of an imminent threat to their life in fact even if you are don't take them to hospital do not go to hospital and do not go to the gp you need to phone 111 
if you're worried and they have a special COVID-19 hotline where they can direct you to the best way to get medical attention. Or if you're worried, you know, for uh, that your life is at risk, then obviously you can phone 999. But what we really don't need is people who are worried they have the infection turning up into ED waiting rooms, GP waiting rooms and spreading it all around. So if you have uh, those symptoms of fever and dry cough or you're worried that your child might might uh, be at risk, keep them away from from other people check the government and the NHS advice websites and phone the appropriate number and you'll be directed to to the right place. Brilliant. And I think you, on your the blog that you and Alison wrote um, for Don't Forget the Bubbles, the, there's links to the current advice on what a what you should do if somebody becomes unwell and also resources for health professionals and i guess it's important to to direct people to those and and say look this is changing very rapidly almost on a day-to-day basis uh, and we all have a kind of responsibility to keep up to speed with with what we're being advised yeah that's right um and actually i, I i've been really impressed with the the national resources um that have been produced both for patients and for healthcare uh, providers. And so I would definitely advise having a read through those and keeping up to date, hopefully, um, wherever, if you are a healthcare provider, whatever institution you're working for is is keeping in uh, close communication with you about what's happening operationally where you work. Um, but otherwise, the national guidelines are are freely and readily available and it and it helps to to familiarise yourself with those because, yeah, as as you say, in that they're, they're changing on an almost uh, daily basis. And I think the expectation is that here in the UK, um, things are likely to change quite a lot over the, the next the next week or so. Okay. Um, so as I say, a, a caveat to, to this podcast is that we, we are recording it on the 11th of March and everything that we've sort of talked about is correct as of to date, but, but things may well and almost certainly will change fairly quickly. Yeah, that's right. So we'll just have to wait and see what happens. Okay. Um, Alistair, thank you so much for joining us today uh, and uh, take care. Thank you so much, Ian.